Influenza A is one of the viruses in circulation that causes what we colloquially call the flu, though it varies from some other flu-causing pathogens in that it is primarily relegated to birds. So the four types of influenza viruses we track, influenza A, B, C, and D, are similar enough that we can trace them back to the same rough ancestral lineage, and they cause somewhat similar symptoms in those they infect. But influenza B and C are primarily human viruses, D is most commonly found in cattle, like cows and pigs, and influenza A is a primarily bird-infecting virus. But these viruses have been known to jump to other species, in some cases just a little and with very little impact, and in some cases somewhat more enthusiastically and with fairly worrying or at times fairly devastating outcomes, though thankfully still in relatively small pockets, even in those worst cases. There are, theoretically at least, 198 different combinations of the proteins that cause variation within the influenza A virus lineage, though only 18 of those combinations have been seen in the wild and documented. And these known versions of this virus are named according to their lineage, their deadliness, their subtype, or their typical host. And some have several names. The subtype moniker may be used within scientific circles, while the host name, which is easier to remember and more informative to the non-science person, might be used more casually and in the press. For instance, a strain of the H5N1 influenza A virus is more commonly called the avian influenza or avian flu or just bird flu if you want to get real casual about it. There are records of this flu or something very similar to it as early as 1878, but there's some reason to believe it was blended in with several other diseases like Newcastle disease and foul plague before then, and forward in time as late as the mid-20th century, as we didn't really have a great way of saying for certain what was causing what until we started to get good at isolating and looking closely at the underlying microscopic organisms that caused the symptoms that up until that point were the only things we could really track. From the 1960s through the mid-1990s, there were more than a dozen confirmed outbreaks of the pathogenic version of the avian flu, though because of how the world's poultry industries were set up at the time, the damage caused to flocks was relatively low. From that point forward, though, things got pretty ugly, as globalization increased dramatically from the mid-1990s through the early 2000s, with the fall of the Soviet Union and the commodification of the just-in-time manufacturing and shipping processes that ultimately came to define much of the planet's economic activity during this period. More of our economies were connected to each other in more ways, basically, and that meant a lot more specializing and scaling up whatever a given area was optimized for. So areas that churned out microchips built more manufacturing capacity for making and shipping microchips globally, and areas that focused on poultry, on eggs, on bird meat, did the same, dramatically increasing the size of their flocks in a given region and dramatically increasing the number of foreign customers to which they were shipping the productized output of those flocks. What I would like to talk about today 
are recent avian flu outbreaks and why some researchers are expressing concern that this currently economically and ecologically destructive wave of infections might become something a lot more dire, and for humans, not just for birds. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, U.S. Considers Vaccinating Chickens as Bird Flu Kills Millions of Them. From the mid-1990s onward, as I mentioned in the intro, the world's poultry hubs massively expanded their holdings. The poultry population, especially but not exclusively chickens, grew about 76% in poorer countries and about 23% in wealthier countries. And that's mostly because the former could make more income doing this type of work than the latter. So we saw this huge expansion of this massive growth market, and all these hubs plugged their operations into the rest of the world, because that was increasingly how global economics were beginning to work. You open yourself up to as many foreign customers as possible, not just local customers. Outbreaks of the avian flu during this expansionary period became more common, with almost as many large outbreaks as there had been in the previous half-century occurring over the course of just a decade, and with a lot more deaths suffered during those outbreaks. Millions of birds dead in just four of those more recent large-scale infection waves. Part of the reason these outbreaks became more deadly during this period is that there were just a lot more birds available to infect and kill. High-density poultry farming became the standard around this time, as folks were looking to hyperscale their production, which meant cramming more birds into the same land area for efficiency. So these birds were living beak to jowl with each other, and that meant an infection that may have infected no other birds or just a handful of them previously, when the chickens were more spread out, would instead infect dozens minimum, because they were all just hanging out together, pooping and breathing on each other all day, and thus entire flocks were killed, rather than the disease sometimes winding down of its own accord, or being manageable so that an infected portion of a flock could be separated and culled, but the rest could go on living on scathed. The H5N1 version of influenza A was originally isolated from a wild goose in 1996, and by 1997, the first human infection was reported. There's a good chance infections were happening before then, but we were now, from that point forward, able to detect and identify this thing, and we were looking for it, because diseases that cross over from animal hosts have a tendency to really mess with humans when they eventually find a foothold in our biologies. Since 2003, just a little over 700 cases of H5N1 have been confirmed in human hosts in more than 60 different countries, though cases have been most heavily centered in China and a few other locations around the world with heavy poultry production presences, places where humans are more likely to come into regular infection-inviting contact with living and dead infected birds. In 2014, the U.S. poultry and egg industry was upended by an outbreak of H5N2, which is another pathogenic subtype of the avian flu. And in that and the subsequent year alone, about 51 million birds were killed as part of the effort to control the spread of this disease, which in addition to that huge number of animal deaths also led to costs 
that added up to nearly a billion dollars, plus another three billion-ish dollars that was required to clear the disease from the U.S. poultry industry apparatus and infrastructure, allowing manufacturers of poultry meat and eggs to get going again without risking another widespread deadly damaging outbreak. That was the last major outbreak in a major poultry and egg-producing region until 2020, when another subtype, H5N8, and like H5N1 and H5N2, this is just another subtype of the core influenza A avian flu virus, was detected and started rapidly spreading through poultry farms and wild bird populations across mostly Europe and Asia, initially being detected in Saudi Arabia, then Russia and Kazakhstan, followed by the Netherlands and then the UK, Germany, the Republic of Ireland, Belgium, Denmark, France, and Sweden. Japan was the next to detect this strain when looking into a local wave of dead chickens across 49 poultry farms. Then came South Korea, then China, and then Norway. That was all in 2020, the span of a single year. In December of 2020, India started investigating the deaths of a bunch of birds within their borders, and they discovered in 2021 that those deaths were caused by that same H5N8 avian flu subtype. That discovery was followed by waves of bird infections in Namibia, Iraq, Algeria, and Afghanistan, alongside secondary waves in China, Germany, and several other earlier hit countries. 2022 brought more headaches for the U.S. poultry industry alongside that of the U.K., and 2023 kicked off with a large outbreak in Argentina. Now, all of these outbreaks have been largely relegated to bird populations, both wild and domesticated. But because of the nature of birds, infected local populations being local doesn't do much to limit the spread of this type of highly virulent disease. Yes, chickens might be kept in coops and behind fences, their wings trimmed so they can't flutter away, but wild birds can and do still drop in on them. And in some cases, outbreaks have been started not by living birds, but by dead birds, killed by the infection, who then drop into the midst of large-scale commercial chicken farms. And because it's so pathogenic, highly spreadable, basically, but also fast mutating. This disease spreads far and wide amidst essentially all bird populations, and then with alarming frequency, hops over to other species, inflicting mammals like cats and minks, but also sometimes humans. And thankfully, that latter case is still quite rare, all things considered, because of how different humans are from birds. Weird mutations and circumstances are typically required for this virus to successfully make that leap. But it does happen. And despite the absolutely boggling cost of this disease currently, from the damage it's causing to just our bird populations, more than 58 million trackable birds in 47 U.S. states were killed either by the disease or as a result of culling performed to prevent its spread in the U.S. alone in 2022 and early 2023 alone all of which costs something like $661 million to the government, and that does not include the costs to the commercial enterprises behind these types of products. Despite all that, researchers who specialize in this sort of disease seem to be even more concerned about the potential costs of an offshoot of the bird flu becoming more comfortable with, and maybe even entrenched in, human populations. 
Now, to be clear, and I think this is important, especially following years of an ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, which was also, according to most of the scientific community right now at least, the result of a virus making the leap from an animal, probably a bat, to human populations, to be clear, the avian flu making it into humans and sticking around is still considered to be an unlikely event. It would not make sense to shut down society over this potentiality at this point. The risk is considered to be low, though perhaps higher now than in previous decades because of the wide, deep spread throughout human-adjacent bird populations. More infections means more opportunity for mutation, and more birds means more potential points of contact with humans and other animals that might come into contact with humans after catching it from a bird. Changing climate norms are also causing all sorts of unpredictable behaviors in all sorts of pathogens. So our earlier sense of how this flu behaves might not be as relevant as before, as the world continues to shift around us. Thankfully, by doing their best to rein in this disease within bird populations for ecological and economic reasons, virus specialists and other experts are also limiting, at the same time, the potential for human crossover events. And they are also keeping tabs on human infections caused by this pathogen in parallel with the tabs they're keeping on infected bird populations. One of the key methods of preventing this flu from spreading is the use of vaccines, which if applied to poultry populations on scale, could significantly staunch the spread of the disease. And this is an approach that's already taken with other poultry diseases, like fowlpox. So the idea of mass vaccinating poultry populations is not new or unfamiliar or untested. It already happens, and it already works. That said, the use of a flu vaccine could see pushback, as despite all the costs and risks associated with the spread of this disease, some producers in the U.S. are worried that the deployment of such vaccines could result in trade restrictions or bans on their products, mostly because of how different regions within and beyond the U.S. regulate the use of substances in the meat and eggs sold in their jurisdictions. So just as some areas have limits on hormones and pesticides and other things that might find their way into meat for safety and purity reasons, the use of vaccines could likewise render these products unsellable or less desirable in some areas. There are also efforts to rethink how poultry farms are set up more fundamentally, which could allow for the deployment of better biosecurity practices. If implemented, this would mean that one infected chicken would no longer require the culling of the whole flock. The spread would be limited by definition, and that could slow or stop local spread of the disease by basically removing vectors from the equation, while also limiting the consequences of any spreading that does manage to happen. This conversation has become a bit political in some areas as prices on some of these goods, like eggs here in the U.S., which doubled or more in price in some regions, reportedly because of this flu and its associated callings, but possibly also because of price gouging by poultry companies, something that's now being investigated by the government as a potential contributor to inflation levels. But all of that aside, there are good faith questions to be asked about how best to address this issue, both to limit the costs and the consequences for these industries and communities that rely upon them, and to reduce the number of instances of bird and human spread as a consequence. 
It may be that costs go up and stay up because that increased income provides this industry the resources they require to spread their chickens out more and to partition the flock a bit and or to pay for widespread vaccine programs. All sorts of efforts that would upgrade their biosecurity infrastructure substantially. It might also be the case that they get a legal slapdown because they've been taking advantage of this contagion to rake in profits under the cover of a pandemic. Now, either way, it's likely this will remain a hot talking point for politicians of various stripes for a while, as eggs and chicken and other poultry products are fairly fundamental to the average U.S. citizen's diet, and thus their expenses as well. One of the major, oft-unspoken or underreported-upon aspects of this conversation is the uncomfortable fact that the world was caught flat-footed by COVID-19. And though we managed to make it through a bit better than would have been the case had government programs and private entities not rushed in to develop vaccines and other protections as quickly as possible, we still didn't do very well. And experts have pointed out that most governments at this point are mostly just keen to move on, in part because of the costs associated with staying in that sort of pandemic war stance. But it's also just not politically popular to maintain that stance anymore, now that the virus has evolved to be somewhat less deadly. We still do not have a solid sense of the long-term consequences of some of these infections, and death numbers are still sky-high compared to where they theoretically could be if we were maintaining a harder stance long-term. But the concern here is that not only did we sort of fail that initial modern global pandemic test because we didn't suitably prepare for the possibility ahead of time, but we also didn't make many changes to how we do things permanently moving forward that would allow us to do better if and when the next pandemic arrives. And because of how the world is changing, the likelihood of another pandemic of a similar or worse scale happening in our lifetimes is considered to be quite high. So rather than being stronger for having gone through all that, most of our infrastructure is actually weaker right now because so many people died. Many people are suffering from long-term chronic consequences of infection. Our health sectors have been cleared out in terms of money and human resources with many nurses and doctors and other professionals having quit due to the stress and lack of support and the danger of having worked on the front lines during a global pandemic with insufficient support all the way through. All of which paints a pretty grim picture for how things would go if another pandemic, like for instance, one sparked by a mutated bird flu virus, were to take hold and spread in a similar way tomorrow, or a year from now, or five years from now. Now for context, bird flu has a far higher mortality rate than even the early days COVID before it sacrificed some of its deadliness for a heightened capacity to spread and bypass immunity. Experts suggest that we need better mechanisms for developing and distributing tests, for quickly refining and getting new vaccines into arms, for producing and stockpiling and distributing protective gear, for providing oversight and safety in our research labs and in how we approach indoor air circulation. It's also been suggested that we should rethink how some of our relevant government agencies function and work on how said agencies and other entities that are connected to this type of work and thus need to communicate their findings and instructions to the public, how they undertake that communication. 
Even if we get this current wave of avian flu under control and put new biosecurity barriers and regulations into place, the likelihood of it continuing to pop up in this industry's infrastructure and continuing to mutate in new and worrying ways, possibly at some point in ways that would allow it to break through those barriers and bypass those precautions, it's still a lot higher than it would ideally be. The most consistent advice from those in the know is that we need to be hardening our defenses in the poultry industry now to account for this, while also preparing ourselves for human variants of this and other worrisome known and currently unknown pathogens so that we're better prepared the next time one makes a successful interspecies leap and then decides to stick around. book I'd like to recommend today is called Invisible China, How the Urban-Rural Divide Threatens China's Rise by Scott Rosell and Natalie Hell. I saw this book recommended a couple different places, mostly in publications written by experts who focus on the study of China and its place in the world today and its history and so on. And this book serves as an excellent data and research-rich primer on some of the issues that China still faces and how many of them tie back to the problem of rurality in China and how much of the success the country has been experiencing, both in terms of eliminating poverty and educating people and deploying some of the better things that the government has managed to do in terms of human flourishing, how much of that is dependent on getting people into cities quickly, and how few of those same benefits are available to the majority of people who still live in often abject poverty with no education or very little education, very few resources, very few of the elements required for human flourishing, all those folks who live in these rural areas. This is a very big concept, and there's a whole lot of research that has gone into this subject, but understanding a bit of it makes a whole lot of what's happening in the news today, especially in regards to China and the various things that they are attempting to do locally. It makes a lot of that news make more sense, because this is an anchor around the Chinese government's ankle, really, and it's something that they're trying very, very hard to fix, but with mixed success. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Invisible China by Scott Roselle and Natalie Hell. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other daily news-focused podcast at onesentencenews.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.